Amen. You guys can be seated. Give it up one more time for the worship team and for the band. Hey, so my name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here at Renaissance and very glad to be with you guys. Um, I got to be honest with you, though. Uh, I, have a, I have a few pet peeves. They're small, but things that always get on my nerves. Uh, one of them is when I go to a party or a family reunion and everybody has to wear one of these name tags. It never quite matches the outfit, the direction I was trying to take my outfit that day. Uh, I mean, red and white stripes, stripes and polka dots, they don't go together. Uh, but they serve a purpose, especially for people like me who aren't good at remembering people's names. It answers the age-old question, who are you? That's a big question. Who are you? How would you fill in the box for your identity? Now, one of the best definitions I've heard for identity is that your identity is the truest thing about you. Uh, it's the truest thing uh, about you. And most of us, when we think about our identity, we think about our first name. Now, there are probably hundreds of thousands of people in this world that have your same first name, depending on how creative your parents got when they named you. Some of your names are, let's just say, one of a kind. Uh, but more than likely, there's other people with your name, but they don't share your identity. Case in point, the name of Jesus. It's the guy we talk about every single day uh, here at Renaissance. Uh, Jesus was a, a common name in the ancient Middle East. As a matter of fact, right before Jesus was going to be crucified, he was in jail next to another man named Jesus. This other guy, his last name, Barabbas. Now, Jesus the Christ, who we come to as the Son of God every week, and Jesus Barabbas were two very different people. Barabbas was not in jail for uh, being the Messiah, uh, the chosen one. Barabbas was in jail for killing someone in a riot. Same name, two very different identities. Other times, when we think about our identity, we think about our job uh, or where we're from. Or sometimes we think about our family of origin, our last name. Now, that's getting closer to who we are, but if you really think about all of your ignorant family members that believe all of the crazy conspiracy theories on Facebook, uh, even if they share your same last name, they certainly don't share your identity. And if you don't think you have any ignorant family members, that's a sign that you are the ignorant family member. <laughs> uh, the truest thing about you is uh, what you actually center your life around. It's bigger than your name. It's bigger than your job. It's bigger than where you're from. It's bigger than your family. Uh, your identity, the truest thing about you, is the thing that you circle everything else in your life around. Um, it's the thing that you orient everything else in your life around. It's the thing that you have to have in order to feel significant. It's what you need. It's who you need in your life in order to feel loved or lovable. Think about that for a second. What can you not live without? At the end of that question is likely your identity. Now, we're in this series called Transformed, and we are looking at what it looks like to develop the spiritual habits and practices that would lead to deep internal transformation in our life, uh, not simply cosmetic changes that you would do, but that we would grow spiritually and emotionally, and we would begin to learn who we are, who God is, and what we should be doing as a result. And the question of identity is the most important question you'll ever answer. Here's why. 
If you don't know who you are, then we can give people a thousand lists of things to do. We can give you all of the best practices, but if you don't know who you are, if you do not have a firm and rooted identity in God, in Christ, then all of the best practices in the world would amount to nothing. On the other side, is also true. If you had a firm grip, a firm grasp on your God-given identity, man, there's nothing in the world that can come against you. Uh, we see this modeled in the life of Jesus uh, as someone who models for us um, what it looks like to live out who we are. Uh, there's a passage of scripture that's in a number of the Gospels. Uh, it's called The Temptations of Jesus. And I'm going to read that passage of scripture for us. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then a tempter approached him and said, if you are the Son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone." Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. Now, the first question that a lot of people are thinking is, great, Jesus encounters the enemy, uh, he's tempted, and he's able to withstand his temptations. What does this have to do with my identity in God? Now, there is a direct correlation between you understanding who you are and your ability to resist temptations, your ability to resist the enemy, your ability to grow, to thrive, and to walk in the direction that God has called you to walk in. I want to back up just a few passages of Scripture, a few verses, to see what was going on in Jesus' life immediately before he's tempted with the temptations to displace his identity on what God told him to do and put it on something else. In Matthew 3 and 13, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John, uh, to, came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, I don't think it's any coincidence that immediately on the heels of the declaration of who Jesus is, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, period. Immediately coming off the heels of that, we see the tempter or the enemy, the one that comes to, to tempt him. And the first questions he asks Jesus are, if you're the son of God. Now, here's what the enemy does, and he does it so well. He does it to us all, all the time. He tries to turn God's periods into question marks. God gave Jesus a statement, this is my son, I'm well pleased in him. The enemy comes right behind and says, if you're the son of God, 
than X, Y, and Z. Uh, this is the age-old tactic that the enemy has been using ever since our first ancestors of Adam and Eve. God gives a statement, a declaration, and he tries to undo what God has said. Adam and Eve, there's 600 trees. Go crazy on 599 of them. But this one right here, do not eat of this. For the day that you eat of this, you will surely die. What does the enemy come back and say? Hey, did God... Yeah, let's, let's, let's talk. Let's talk. Let's talk. Did God really... Did he really say that? Is that what he really said? That you can't eat? No, 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 no. He knows that once you eat from this tree, then you will know... Uh, from good and evil, you'll know the difference and you'll be like him. And listen, God is hating on you. God wants you, God is, he's holding back uh, that he doesn't want good things for you. And he tries to turn God's declarations, what God has said definitively and put them as a, as a question mark. Now, here's why this is so important. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then the truest thing about you, the truest thing about you is that you are a child of God. Bigger than your feelings, bigger than anything else that's going on in the world, if you have placed your faith in God, the truest thing about you is that you are a child of God. Now, one of the biggest difficulties is that even though that might be a truth, that is hard for it to make it from our heads to our hearts, and certainly I know this to be true personally. Um, I've been a Christian for about 16 years. Um, I grew up in church and I remember when I first became a Christian, I had heard all about the love and the forgiveness of God, and it just sounded a little bit too good to be true. Uh, I had made a lot of mistakes in my life, and when I first became a Christian, I was just determined that I had made God so mad and so disappointed that it was going to take me years and probably decades to work off all of the garbage that I've done. I had made a lot of mistakes. I wasn't coming to Jesus in a limousine. I was riding to Jesus on a rusty sea train. Anybody who's taking the C train, if the C train is your thing, it's, it should be shut down. It should just, they should just stop. I never had any real confidence that God was with me. I, I never had any real confidence that God liked me. I never had any real confidence that God was, was actually working in my life. At best, I was a student of God or maybe an employee, that I can maybe win employee of the month if I work really hard, and then, then God will be pleased for me, with me. But I had this nagging fear in the back of my head that what if I don't do good enough today? Is God going to just yank away everything that's going on good in my life? And it ended up turning me into a, a Pharisee. I was the most hard-nosed uh, person on my college campus. I would do anything uh, just to, to stay in God's graces, and it was the most exhausting and miserable time of my life. Let me ask you a question. Would the word confident describe your relationship with God? If you think about, is God active in your life? Does God love you? Does God like you? Is the word confident the, the first word that would jump off the page at you? Uh, I don't think that's the case for many of us, um, but Jesus didn't come to earth so that you would learn how to spin plates better. Uh, Jesus Christ did not incarnate, and God didn't come in the flesh so that you would do a better job at your devotional time. God came to make you a child of God. Uh, scripture tells us this beautiful truth that is almost uh, too good to be true. It says it in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. It says, For he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, 
to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Let me ask you guys a question. Who has the right to label you and tell you what the truest thing about you is? Who has that right? Uh, Oftentimes, uh, we think that we ourselves have that right, and when we do that, we automatically put it in wrong places. And Scripture is telling us something absolutely amazing here. It's telling us that before there was a planet Earth, God had predetermined, God had chosen to lavish his, his, his love and his grace on everyone who has placed their faith in Christ. And it wasn't based on what you have done because how you, none of us have done anything before the foundation of the world. It's not based on your great performance. It's based on his glorious and ridiculous grace. Now, here's what's so difficult about that. That sounds like a wonderful truth, but it's often too good to be true that we are adopted now, members of God's family, full participants, active, loved, cared for, and uh, taken care of. Uh, One of my friends uh, adopted a child from South Africa, and for months and months, she spent thousands and thousands of dollars, uh, much more money than she had personally, in order to go through all of these legal transactions behind the scenes so that she could one day fly across the globe and pick up this child that was now her son. And this little boy was sitting in an orphanage in Cape Town, South Africa, completely unaware of everything that was going on behind the scenes. And then one day, this woman shows up and is now his adopted parent. You know what happened when he saw her? He didn't run up to her and say, oh my God, it's you. Oh my, this is amazing. Come on, let's go and and, and pack the bag and go. Uh, It was actually met with a whole lot of uncertainty and distrust. He had no idea who this lady was. He was just going along for the ride. Like, hey, if they say this is what I got to do, then this is what I have to do. Uh, She told a story about when they first moved into their apartment, and uh, she had his bed all made and toys laid out for him all over the bed. And he saw the toys, and he would eat the meals and shoving food down his throat as fast as he could eat. And he took his toys, and he hid them under the bed. And she had to say, listen, you're not in an orphanage anymore. These are your toys, this is your bed, this is your room, this is your food, this is your refrigerator, and I've done all of this because I love you. For the last number of months and years, I've been working behind the scenes to adopt you. And he looked at her and was like, yeah, sure, right. Now, a lot of us say that we know that we're children of God, but we're still living like we're in an orphanage. You mean to tell me that before the foundation of the world... God has been working behind the scenes to adopt me as his child, and everything that I've done, God has put that sin on Jesus, and God has given me all the credit that Jesus deserves and put that on me, and now I am fully loved, adopted, whole, forgiven because of Jesus, all the stuff behind the scenes? Sure. Sounds too good to be true. But I want to ask that question again. Who has the right to label you? Do you need to be aware of what was happening for it to have taken place? The answer is no. Oftentimes, we let our feelings create our identity, what the truest thing about us is, and our feelings change as often as the weather. One day you're feeling up, the next day you're feeling down. And if you and I are to experience deep transformation, it's going to be a long and arduous process of learning to live out our identity as the children of God, as the truest thing about us. And if there's anything that we need to recover, it is that. Now, Scripture gives us some equally profound and direct um, declarations of, uh, of 
who you are if you have placed your faith in Jesus. Romans 8 and 1, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is none. Debt has been paid. Uh, years ago, I remember uh, we went to Benihana for a friend's birthday. Don't judge me. I don't, I don't normally go to chain places, but you've got to admit the hibachi grill is, is pretty good. Um, we went to Benihana for a friend's birthday, and at the end of the night, these two people that were sitting at our table just decided to pay our bill. We had never met them before. I had never seen them before a day in my life. And we get up, they bring us the check, and uh, just zero balance. And we had a, a good night. We had a, a pretty big table, and they spent 300 something dollars on us. And it was almost too good to be true. But just because I didn't feel like it was true didn't make it not true. Just because in my mind it didn't make sense to me didn't mean that I suddenly now owed a couple hundred dollars. No, the debt had been paid regardless of how I felt. And Scripture here is telling us, now therefore there is no condemnation to those of you who are in Christ Jesus. Another Scripture in John 1 and 12, it says, but to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. Ephesians 2 and 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of us, ahead of time for us to do. And the list can go on and on and on and on about the declarations that Scripture tells about anyone who's placed their faith in Jesus. And you want to know what the most troubling thing about all of those Scriptures are, as much as we need to read them and we need to let those wash over us and penetrate our hearts, uh, oftentimes we find them too good to be true and we don't believe them. But it is the work of the enemy to get us to question what God has said over our lives. Now, we see this in the temptation of Jesus, a couple of the tactics and ways in which the enemy tries to subvert and to undo the declarations that God spoke over Jesus, that this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, and immediately thereafter, he comes to question that. And we see that in the scripture, it says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God. Tell these stones to become bread. He answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, I know you guys are all modern and sophisticated and you don't believe in the devil, but allow me some latitude right now and say, if there was a devil, what better tactic would it be to get you to question who God is saying that you are? What more dynamic punch could he deliver than to get you to question the very thing that God has spoken over your life? And we see him come to Jesus in a number of ways. After God tells Jesus, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, the first thing he does, he says, if you are the son of God, then do this. Tell these stones to become bread. And his primary tactic is to turn God's periods into question marks. First way we see Jesus tempted is to believe this lie that I am what I do. If you're the son of God, Jesus, prove it. Tell these stones to become bread. Go ahead and do it. Jesus responds to him, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Hey, a lot of us in here, I would imagine, have that nagging suspicion. If you're a child of God, then why don't you just get it right? Why are you still in the same place? Why haven't you figured it out yet? You still haven't moved forward, but yet you're a child of God. Our culture 
tells us over and over again in almost every arena of life that we're in, in work, in school, in our relationships, that you are what you do and that you are treated according to how well you behave. And the gospel goes against that and it reverses that on, our, on its head. Uh, God does not love us because we are good. God makes us good because he loves us. And the temptation to believe that we are what we do is the thing that will keep us in handcuffs forever. They will put you on a treadmill because as uh, an author uh, says it, when you approach life as a sequence of milestones to be achieved, you exist in a state of near continuous failure. Almost all of the time, by definition, you're not at the place you, defi- you define as embodying accomplishment or success. And should you get there, you'll find you've lost the very thing that gave you a sense of purpose. So you'll formulate a new goal and start again. Now, I know this first, um, firsthand Uh, I'm so tempted all the time to think that I am uh, exactly what I do and that my value is linked to how well the church is doing, Um, and it it crushes me because as soon as I feel like we're doing an okay job, something comes and sweeps me out from under my legs, and there's a new goal to be hit, and it's something new to beat beat myself up over, and I always ask this question. I've said it a number of times. Uh, Think about a day or a week when you could not have done better. Have you ever had that? Where for this past week, there's not one scintilla of ways that you could have done better. There's always a a chance for us to have done better. And when we link our identity, the truest thing about us to be that we are what we do, we live in a state of near continuous failure because we could have always done better. Second thing we see in Scripture going forward, we see, uh, then a devil took him to to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. The second line we see here in Scripture uh, is the second temptation that I am what other people think of me. I am what other people think of me. Now, it's interesting to note for you historians that the pinnacle of the temple was the most visible place in the entire city of Jerusalem. So essentially, what the enemy is saying to Jesus is, hey, go to the most popping spot in Jerusalem and just stun on them. Just like jump off and just float down graciously, and then you'll prove to everybody that you're the Messiah, and then everybody's going to believe you, everybody's going to be patting you on your back, and they're all going to love you, man. The, the terrible thing about believing that we are what other people think of us is, one, their opinions change as, as frequently as the weather does, um, and you always have to live in that court of public opinion. Now, a lot of times when Jesus did miracles, it certainly was to display his power and his glory, but it was never for, uh, to be ostentatious or just for showing off. A lot of times when Jesus would heal somebody, he would say, yo, don't even tell anybody that it was me that healed you. God's control over this world, Jesus' work in this life was not to be won over uh, by impressing a bunch of people. And Jesus knew that I am not what other people think about me. I don't know if you've ever had a time where you've had a conversation and you just said something that was just really stupid. Uh, I had this happen to me a lot, believe it or not. And um, uh, I was in the hallway a couple of weeks ago and I was talking to a woman. And like in the very beginning of the conversation, I just said something that was really stupid. And... For the rest of the conversation, I wasn't even paying attention to her. I was just worrying about what she thought of me, and I was trying to, like, like fix it. Like, yeah, I mean, because, you know, I mean, technically I said that earlier, but, I mean, for being honest, you know, I was just, you know, 
Uh, and for the rest of the day, I was miserable. I went home on my couch thinking about, like, yo, why did I say that? We live in this temptation to believe that we are what other people think of us, and you want to know uh, how true this is? It's when our happiness soars when we get approval and when people say good things about us, or we're devastated by criticism. If you're unable to receive criticism, uh, as a lot of people are, then chances are you live in the court of public approval, that your life, your value, your real identity is in what other people think of you. So if they are not going to think well of you, then you're not going to do that. Now, this is terribly crippling for everything that God has for you, because oftentimes throughout Scripture, God calls people in directions that are away from public approval. The men and women that God called on his behalf, oftentimes, they were flying in the face of what everybody else thought that they should be doing. And God's unique call can get snuffed out in your life if we live in that court of public approval of what people think of us. Moving forward, we see uh, in verse 8, it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all of these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The last lie that we're so tempted to believe is, I am what I have. I am what I have. Jesus was taken to see all the magnificence and splendor and power of all of these kingdoms. And the devil, devil basically came to him and said, listen, Jesus, listen, let's cut a deal. If you worship me, I'll give you all of these kingdoms and you'll have the most amazing splendor and life that anybody could ever see. Now, there's a pretty terrible lie that you and I are, are tempted to believe that you and I are what we have. And a lot of times we'll do unhealthy things to get it. People will overwork and neglect their families. I have overworked and neglected my family, all to attain something or to get something or, something or some achievement to prove to myself that I am something, that I matter, that I'm not just mediocre. Uh, Tim Keller, in one of his books, gave a quote uh, from Madonna. Um, and this is the 1980s Madonna that actually had a following, not the British accent Madonna of uh, 2015. How do you get a British accent if you're from Detroit? That's a theological question that you can figure out later on your own time. Uh, Madonna always talked about the crushing weight of having to perform again. That even when she was selling out Madison Square Garden, even when she was selling, breaking the charts of, of selling so many records, that she always was being pushed by this fear that she's mediocre and she had to do it again and again and again and again. And to place your identity in what you have or what you have done, man, it's a terrible place because you're always going to have to prove to yourself that you can do it again. And that victory only lasts about 37 seconds. Now, to undo these lies of the enemy, uh, the best way to go against this is for you and I to rehearse truth. Uh, the best way to undo the lies of the enemy is for you to rehearse the truth of what God has spoken over your life. And when we see Jesus, uh, his response to the temptations um, is not to simply shrug them off, but his response is to respond with God's word over what God has said. And over and over again, when Jesus is tempted, he responds with the truth of God found in Scripture. And that's a good indication that the best way for you and I to defeat these lies of I am what I am, I mean, I am what I, I do or what people think of me or what I have, is to rehearse the truth that we find in Scripture. Now, 
throughout different parts of my life, I, I've tried the different spiritual practices, and I want to kick one up for us this week that I want us to engage in, and this might be something that's new for you. Um, it's called scripture memorization. Now, when I say memorization, I don't mean that you need to go home and memorize the book of Isaiah. You don't need to uh, read uh, uh, chapters and chapters and chapters and memorize it. Uh, but I do think that there is a special benefit that comes to us when we memorize and rehearse the, the truth that God has for us in Scripture, and we put that over our lives. And, and here's one reason why. It's probably one of the biggest reasons. That faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. You want to know what's going to give you more faith? You hearing the Word of God. You want to know what's going to make you more confident? You hearing the Word of God. You want to know what's going to give you more ease and more peace and more settled that you are a child of God? Is you hearing the Word of God. And this week, I would love it if you were to think about some scriptures, maybe some of the scriptures we've gone over today, that there's no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. And I don't want you to judge it on Monday morning, but I want you to judge it next Saturday evening, that if you spent a week reciting and memorizing a scripture and using that throughout the day, what that does to us, how scripture can drag us along, sometimes even against our will. There's a scripture in 1 Peter where it talks about that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit to, to write these holy works, and it's a metaphor of God carrying us along, God lifting us up and moving us from one place to another. And if you cannot see a way that you can move to, to be able to have a more rooted identity, uh, memorizing scripture is a great way that will carry us and move us along in life. And listen, I'm not trying to give you another thing for you to not do and feel guilty about for not doing it. I'm not trying to do that. But I don't want us to be missing out on opportunities to bathe ourselves in God's truth uh, and be defeated all the time and constantly living in defeat. Memorizing scripture makes it more accessible to us in the times where you're not looking at your phone or anything like that. And uh, there's uh, an additional benefit. It guards your heart and it guards your mind. Um, the scripture's metaphor for what it does for you is almost like a bouncer standing in front of a club. And it's some people it doesn't let in and some people it has to kick out. Now, a lot of us have a lot of crazy things, a lot of really unhealthy things going on in our, in our minds and our hearts because we don't have Scripture guarding our hearts and our mind. Now, secondly, the second part is not up to us. It's up to God's Holy Spirit to apply that word to our life and to make it alive. And the difference between you reading and memorizing something and reciting something and it becoming realer and realer to you is not on the amount of effort, but it's based on what God's Spirit does inside of you. And I want to spend some time praying right now for us that... Uh, God's Spirit would make it alive for us as we go into this venture this week. Uh, God, uh, I pray that everyone in this room, God, you know the struggles that we have, and you know where we struggle to feel like the truest thing about us is that we are your child. And God, this week as we endeavor to memorize or recite Scripture, God, don't let it just be words that we say. Um, don't let it just be things that we hear. Don't let it bounce off a hard soil. God, would you till the ground and the soil of our hearts and make it so that the seed of your word would grow and develop into fruit, fruit that lasts. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.